footsteps behind you as you enter the woods. Night draws back its cape. Light illumines your path. Open your eyes. Listen. Welcome to Dark Softly Tales. Dark stories for dark hearts. I'm Mav Sky. Good evening, and welcome to your nightmares. And to your favorite horror storytelling podcast, Dark Softly Tales, this is your host, Mav. No science lesson this week, folks, but I do want to say, for those of you who aren't familiar with story, and perhaps to those of you who are, notice how Lovecraft creates the atmosphere. I think what makes this story especially eerie is how he uses everyday unsettling happenings to build the suspense. Like the way he describes the fruit. Have you ever found an apple that looks perfect on the outside? It's red, big, juicy, and you take that bite into it and ugh, it tastes terrible. Or. The way tree limbs are moving, but there doesn't appear to be wind. I have noticed that before. I'll see it like from inside the house and I'll go outside and I don't feel wind and I'm like, why is that tree branch moving? And of course it's like a squirrel jumping around or whatever. But he uses these kinds of things to play on our fears and suspicions. They are instinctual fears. What if there really is no wind? and the tree limbs are moving by themselves. What does that mean? What if your entire farm crop is mysteriously poisoned? What if the leaves of weeds are shimmering like chrome? What does this mean? The answer is horrifying. And in this story, maddening. H.P. Lovecraft is what I consider a master of storytelling. And this week, I think you'll agree with me. Let's take a walk to Nahum's farm, shall we? Don't pay attention to those screams in the attic or the woman crawling on all fours. I'm sure there's nothing to be afraid of. Is there? Take my hand and hang on tight as we journey into the dark softly. The Color Out of Space by H.P. Lovecraft. Narrated by Mav Sky. Part 2. As was natural, the Arkham papers made much of the incident with its collegiate sponsoring and sent reporters to talk with Nahum Gardner and his family. At least one Boston Daily also sent a scribe, and Nahum quickly became a kind of local celebrity. He was a lean, genial person of about 50, living with his wife and three sons on the pleasant farmstead in the valley. He and Amy exchanged visits frequently, as did their wives, 
and Amy had nothing but praise for him after all these years. He seemed slightly proud of the notice his place had attracted, and talked often of the meteorite in the succeeding weeks. That July and August were hot, and Nahum worked hard at his haying in the ten-acre pasture across Chapman's Brook, his rattling wane wearing deep ruts in the shadowy lanes between. The labor tired him more than it had in other years, and he felt that age was beginning to tell on him. Then fell the time of fruit and harvest. The pears and apples slowly ripened, and Nahum vowed that his orchards were prospering as never before. The fruit was growing to phenomenal size, an unwanted gloss, and in such abundance that extra barrels were ordered to handle the future crop. But with the ripening came sore disappointment, for all of that gorgeous array of specious lusciousness, not one single jot was fit to eat. Into the fine flavor of the pears and apples had crept a stealthy bitterness and sickishness, so that even the smallest bites induced a lasting disgust. It was the same with the melons and tomatoes, and Nahum sadly saw that his entire crop was lost. Quick to connect events, he declared that the meteorite had poisoned the soil, and thanked heaven that most of the other crops were in the upland lot along the road. Winter came early, and it was very cold. Amy saw Nahum less often than usual, and observed that he had begun to look worried. The rest of his family, too, seemed to have grown taxi-turn, and were far from steady in their church-going or their attendance at the various social events of the countryside. For this reserve or melancholy, no cause could be found, though all the household confessed now and then to poorer health and a feeling of vague disquiet. Nahum himself gave the most definite statement of anyone when he said he was disturbed about certain footprints in the snow. They were the usual winter prints of red squirrels, white rabbits, and foxes, but the brooding farmer professed to see something not quite right about their nature and arrangement. He was never specific but appeared to think that they were not as characteristic of the anatomy of habits of squirrels and rabbits and foxes as they ought to be. Amy listened without interest to this talk, until one night, when he drove past Nahum's house in his sleigh on the way back from Clark's Corner, there had been a moon, and a rabbit had run across the road, and the leaps of that rabbit were longer than either Amy or his horse liked. The latter, indeed, had almost run away when brought up by a firm rain. Thereafter, Amy gave Nahum's tales more respect, and wondered why the gardener's dog seemed so cowed and quivering every morning. They had, it developed, nearly lost the spirit to bark. In February, the McGuire boys from Meadow Hill were out shooting woodchucks, and not far from the gardener place bagged a very peculiar specimen. The proportions of its body seemed slightly altered in a queer way impossible to describe, while its face had taken on an expression which no one ever saw in a woodchuck before. The boys were genuinely frightened and threw the thing away at once so that only their grotesque tales of it ever reached the people on the countryside. 
by the shying of horses near Nahum's house, had now become an acknowledged thing, and all the basis for a cycle of whispered legend was fast taking form. People vowed that the snow melted faster around Nahum's than it did anywhere else, and early in March, there was an odd discussion in Potter's General Store at Clark's Corner. Stephen Rice had driven past gardeners in the morning and had noticed the skunk cabbages coming up through the mud by the woods across the road. Never were things of such size seen before, and they held strange colors that could not be put into any words. Their shapes were monstrous, and the horse had snorted at the odor, which struck Stephen as wholly unprecedented. That afternoon, several persons drove past to see the abnormal growth, and all agreed that plants of that kind ought never to sprout in a healthy world. The bad fruit of the fall before was freely mentioned, and it went from mouth to mouth that there was poison in Nahum's ground. Of course it was the meteorite, and remembering how strange the men from the college had found that stone to be, several farmers spoke about the matter to them. One day, they paid Nahum a visit, but having no love of wild tales and folklore, were very conservative in what they inferred. The plants were certainly odd, but all skunk cabbages are more or less odd in shape and hue. Perhaps some mineral element from the stone had entered the soil, but it would soon be washed away. And as for the footprints and frightened horses, of course this was mere country talk, which such a phenomenon as that arrow light would be certain to start. There was really nothing for serious men to do in cases of wild gossip, for superstitious rustics will say and believe anything. And so all through the strange days, the professors stayed away in contempt. Only one of them, when given two files of dust for analysis in a police job over a year and a half later, recalled that the queer color of that skunk cabbage had been very like one of the anomalous bands of light shown by the meteor fragment in the college spectroscope, and like the brittle globule found embedded in the stone from the abyss. The samples in this analysis gave the same odd bands at first, though later they lost the property. The trees budded prematurely around Nahum's, and at night they swayed ominously in the wind. Nahum's second son, Thaddeus, a lad of fifteen, swore that they swayed also when there was no wind, but even the gossips would not credit this. Certainly, however, restlessness was in the air. The entire Gardner family developed the habit of stealthily listening, though not for any sound which they could consciously name. The listening was, indeed, rather a product of moments when consciousness seemed half to slip away. Unfortunately, such moments increased week by week, till it became common speech that something was wrong with all Nahum's folks. When the early saxifrage came out, it had another strange color, not quite like that of the skunk cabbage, but plainly related and equally unknown to anyone who saw it. Nahum took some blossoms to Arkham 
and showed them to the editor of the Gazette, but that dignity did no more than write a humorous article about them, in which the dark fears of rustics were held up to polite ridicule. It was a mistake of Nahum's to tell a stolid city man about the way the great, overgrown, mourning cloak butterflies behaved in connection with these saxifrages. April brought a kind of madness to the country folk and began that disuse of the road past Nahum's, which led to its ultimate abandonment. It was the vegetation. All the orchard trees blossomed forth in strange colors, and through the stony soil of the yard and adjacent pasturage there sprang up a bizarre growth which only a botanist could connect with the proper flora of the region. No sane, wholesome colors were anywhere to be seen, except in the green grass and leafage. But everywhere were those hectic and prismatic variants of some disease, underlying primary tone, without a place among the known tints of earth. The Dutchman's breeches became a thing of sinister menace, and the blood roots grew insolent in their chromatic perversion. Amy and the gardeners thought that most of the colors had a sort of haunting familiarity and decided that they were reminded one of the brittle globule in the meteor. Nahum plowed and sowed the ten-acre pasture and the upland lot, but did nothing with the land around the house. He knew it would be no use and hoped that the summer's strange growths would draw all the poison from the soil. He was prepared for almost anything now, and had grown used to the sense of something near him, waiting to be heard. The shunning of his house by neighbors told on him, of course, but it told on his wife more. The boys were better off, being at school each day, but they could not help being frightened by the gossip, Thaddeus, an especially sensitive youth, suffered the most. In May, the insects came, and Nahum's place became a nightmare of buzzing and crawling. Most of the creatures seemed not quite usual in their aspects and motions, and their nocturnal habits contradicted all former experience. The gardeners took to watching at night, watching in all directions at random, for something. They could not tell what. It was then that they owned that Thaddeus had been right about the trees. Mrs. Gardner was the next to see it from the window, as she watched the swollen boughs of a maple against a moonlit sky. The boughs surely moved, and there was no wind. It must be the sap. Strangers had come into everything growing now. Yet it was none of Nahum's family at all who made the next discovery. Familiarity had dulled them, and what they could not see was glimpsed by a timid windmill salesman from Bolton who drove by one night in ignorance of the country legends. What he told, in Arkham, was given a short paragraph in the Gazette, and it was there that all the farmers, Nahum included, saw it first. The night had been dark, and the buggy lamps faint, but around a farm in the valley which everyone knew from the account must be Nahum's, the darkness had been less thick. 
A dim though distinct luminosity seemed to inherit in all the vegetation, grass, leaves, and blossoms alike, while at one moment a detached piece of the phosphorescence appeared to stir furtively in the yard near the barn. The grass had so far seemed untouched, and the cows were freely pastured in the lot near the house. But toward the end of May, the milk began to be bad. Then Nahum had the cows driven to the uplands, after which this trouble ceased. Not long after this change in grass and leaves became apparent to the eye, all the verdure was going gray and was developing a highly singular quality of brittleness. Amy was now the only person who ever visited the place, and his visits were becoming fewer and fewer. When the school closed, the gardeners were virtually cut off from the world, and sometimes let Amy do their errands in town. They were failing curiously, both physically and mentally, and no one was surprised when the news of Mrs. Gardner's madness stole around. It happened in June, about the anniversary of the meteor's fall, and the poor woman screamed about things in the air which she could not describe. In her raving, there was not a single specific noun, but only verbs and pronouns. Things moved and changed and fluttered, and ears tingled to impulses which were not holy sounds. Something was taken away, and she was being drained of something. Something was fastening itself on her that ought not to be. Someone must make it keep off. Nothing was ever still in the night. The walls and windows shifted. Nahum did not send her to the county asylum, but let her wander about the house as long as she was harmless to herself and others. Even when her expression changed, he did nothing. But when the boys grew afraid of her, and Thaddeus nearly fainted at the way she made faces at him, he decided to keep her locked in the attic. By July, she had ceased to speak and crawled on all fours. And before that month was over, Nahum got the mad notion that she was slightly luminous in the dark, as he now clearly saw was the case with a nearby vegetation. It was a little before this that the horses had stampeded. Something had aroused them in the night, and their neighing and kicking in their stalls had been terrible. There seemed virtually nothing to do to calm them, and when Nehum opened the stable door, they all bolted out like frightened woodland deer. It took a week to track all four, and when found, they were seen to be quite useless and unmanageable. Something had snapped in their brains, and each one had to be shot for its own good. Nahum borrowed a horse from Amy for his hang, but found it would not approach the barn. It shied, balked, and whinnied, and in the end he could do nothing but drive it into the yard, while the men used their own strength to get the heavy wagon near enough the hayloft for convenient pitching. And all the while the vegetation was turning gray and brittle, even the flowers whose hues had been so strange were graying now, and the fruit was coming out gray and dwarfed and tasteless. The asters and the goldenrod bloomed gray and distorted, and the roses and zinnias and hollyhocks in the front yard were such blasphemous-looking things that Nahum's oldest boy, Zanus, cut them down. 
The strangely puffed insects died about that time. Even the bees had left their hives and taken to the woods. By September, all the vegetation was fast crumbling to a grayish powder, and Nahum feared that the trees would die before the poison was out of the soil. His wife now had spells of terrific screaming, and he and the boys were in a constant state of nervous tension. They shunned people now, and when school opened, the boys did not go. But it was Amy, on one of his rare visits, who first realized that the well water was no longer good. It had an evil taste that was not exactly fetid nor exactly salty. And Amy advised his friend to dig another well on higher ground to use till the soil was good again. Nahum, however, ignored the warning, for he had, by that time, become callous to strange and unpleasant things. He and the boys continued to use the tainted supply, drinking it as listlessly and mechanically as they ate their meager and ill-cooked meals and did their thankless and monotonous chores through the aimless days. There was something of stolid resignation about them all, as if they had walked half in another world between lines of nameless guards to a certain and familiar doom. Thaddeus went mad in September, after a visit to the well. He had gone with the pail and come back empty-handed, shrieking and waving his arms, and sometimes lapsing into an inane titter or a whisper about the moving colors down there. Two in one family was pretty bad, but Nahum was very brave about it. He let the boy run about for a week, until he began stumbling and hurting himself, and then he shut him in an attic room across the hall from his mother's. The way they screamed at each other from behind their locked doors was very terrible, especially to little Merwin, who fancied they talked in some terrible language that was not of earth. Merwin was getting frightfully imaginative, and his restlessness was worse after the shedding away of the brother, who had been his greatest playmate. Almost at the same time, the mortality among the livestock commenced. Poultry turned grayish and died very quickly, their meat being found dry and noisome upon cutting. Hogs grew inordinately fat, then suddenly began to undergo loathsome changes which no one could explain. Their meat was of course useless, and Nahum was at his wit's end. No rural veterinary would approach his place and the city veterinary from Arkham was openly baffled. The swine began growing gray and brittle and falling to pieces before they died, and their eyes and muzzles developed singular alterations. It was very inexplicable, for they had never been fed from the tainted vegetation. Then something struck the cows. Certain areas, or sometimes the whole body, would be uncannily shriveled or compressed, and atrocious collapses or disintegrations were common. In the last stages, and death was always the result, there would be a graying and turning brittle like that which beset the hogs. There could be no question of poison, for all the cases occurred in a locked and undisturbed barn. No bites of prowling things could have brought the virus, 
For what live beast of earth can pass through solid obstacles? It must be only natural disease. Yet what disease could wreak such results was beyond any mind's questioning. When the harvest came, there was not any animal surviving on the place, for the stock and poultry were dead, and the dogs had run away. These dogs, three in number, had all vanished one night and were never heard of again. The five cats had left some time before, but their going was scarcely noticed since there now seemed to be no mice, and only Mrs. Gardner had made pets of the graceful felines. On the 19th of October, Nahum staggered into Amy's house with hideous news. The death had come to poor Thaddeus in his attic room, and it had come in a way which could not be told. Nahum had dug a grave in the railed family plot behind the farm and had put therein what he found. There could have been nothing from outside, for the small barred window and locked door were intact, but it was not much as it had been in the barn. Amy and his wife consoled the stricken man as best they could, but shuddered as they did so. Stark terror seemed to cling round the gardeners and all they touched, and the very presence of one in the house was a breath from regions unnamed and unnameable. Amy accompanied Nahum home with the greatest reluctance and did what he might to calm the hysterical sobbing of little Merwin. Xaneas needed no calming. He had come of late to do nothing but stare into space and obey what his father told him, and Amy thought that his fate was very merciful. Now and then, Merwin's screams were answered faintly from the attic, and in response to an inquiring look, Nahum said that his wife was getting very feeble. When night approached, Amy managed to get away, for not even friendship could make him stay in that spot when the faint glow of the vegetation began and the trees may or may not have swayed without wind. It was really lucky for Amy that he was not more imaginative. Even as things were, his mind was bent ever so slightly, but had he been able to connect and reflect upon all the portents around him, he must inevitably have turned a total maniac. In the twilight, he hastened home, the screams of the madwoman and the nervous child ringing horribly in his ears. Who likes dark stories? People who have experienced a touch of the dark side. People who are a little wiser to the world. People who like their bones chilled and their spines tingled. People like you and me. It's hard to find a story these days that write on the dark side with a touch of whimsy, humor, and heart. Mavsky spreads her dark wings and solves this problem for you. Head on over to Amazon and type Mavsky's name into the search engine. M-A-V-S-K-Y-E. At Amazon, you'll find her Tales to Chill Your Bones series, Girl Clown Hatchet series, Supergirl series, her cult classic novel, Wanted Single Rails, and of course, her brand new release, Cold Hangs the Midnight. Choose your dark flavor and head on over to Amazon today.